0: chapter, and we're going to be dealing with 8, verse 8 and 9. That's where we'll start. That's where our study, I think, ended last week. Now keep in mind, verse 1 of this chapter, Paul said, Now concerning those things whereof you wrote unto me, And so the Corinthians had written a letter to him and they'd ask him certain questions. We don't have a list of the questions that they ask. Nor do we need them. If we needed those questions, uh, uh, the inspiration of God would have seen to it that they were in there. But they're not in there. But in this chapter, Paul deals with questions that they had Uh, in the situation that they were in at that time about marriage. Now remember, uh, Corinth, because of its location, it's a gathering, a a settling pot, or a gathering pot, for all the pagan ideas of the world. And so there's all kinds of strange teachings about marriage, divorce, and all of that, that, which was there at Corinth. And so out of that background, Paul is answering their questions. Uh, Now to the unmarried and the widows, uh, in verse 8 and 9, he says, But to the unmarried and widows I say, it is good. Now notice that the same thought that he had back up there in verse 1. He said, it is good. This is the second time he says it. It's good for them to remain unmarried as I am. Verse 9, but if they cannot contain control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, having said that, uh, here's where I'd like to comment on this in a very brief way. First of all, Paul says, I say, uh, which doesn't take it out of the realm of the obligatory necessarily, but it does take it out of the realm of, I'm just passing on what someone else said. So Paul states, I say. And he's an apostle. Now, it's either an inspired commandment or it's inspired advice. And, of course, in either case, it's inspired. So don't get the idea that Paul just giving some kind of human advice here. He's not. He's an inspired apostle. Uh, He shows that they don't have to do it with the statement, it is good, but if. And so there's a condition. Uh, We'll get to the if in a minute. But first of all, he says Good. That's the Greek word, K-A-R-E-N-E, Kareem, which means morally good. Uh, In other words, it's pleasing to God in every respect. That's the idea of that word. It's unobjectionable. It's blameless. It's excellent. And so there's no way that anybody could object to this Nobody could be blamed for doing this. If you do this, you're pleasing to God. It's the excellent thing to do is what that word declares. It is an excellent thing to do. So in regard to the unmarried state, again, he says that this is a blameless state. This is a good state. Uh, It's uh, not good beautifully Although that word, Karone, K-A-R-O-N-E, comes to mean that, but literally even in uh, their language, an immoral lady would never be called Karon. She would be called something else, but she would never be called Karon. Uh That's not beautiful. And so the beauty in that word goes way beyond it and deeper than the surface. <clears throat> and we've been finding this out in our uh, many studies that we're having that the Greek goes much deeper than the English ever did and ever will. The Greek language was, is the most perfect language in the world. The languages come from God. He gave us the languages at the Tower of Babel when he confused man and caused him to do what he commissioned him to do to go forth and replenish the earth multiply and replenish and to subdue it and they were all gathered up building a tower to heaven to escape another flood which he swore by the oath of the covenant of a rainbow that he never would again Now this text both urges celibacy and it urges marriage with a third person imperative. It urges marriage with a third person imperative that cannot control. Uh, he says, "In this, in regard, uh, in this, to remain unmarried. That is, if they have no inward." Uh, a constant strife about it uh, that is to burn with passion later on a constant inward struggle within uh, within the person if they don't have that if their mind is secure in an unmarried state it should not seek marriage Paul says I think a lot of that or I know that a lot of that is because of the present situation in the city of Corinth as he writes Uh, for what he will say uh, to the young ladies in in Ephesus as is recorded in 1 Timothy 4 verse 3, he tells the young ladies to get married. And so he will tell them it's good for them to get married. He tells them unmarried and widows, he tells them that it's good for them not to marry. And of course, that conjoins his statement that he made in the sixth chapter. You remember in verse 11? He said, all things are lawful, but not all things are uh, desirable uh, under the circumstances. Not all things are expedient, is what he said, actually. But it means desirable here under the circumstances of what existed there at Corinth situation there. So Paul when he adds this word good he immediately gets it by one gate, the lawful and he says now to me it's uh, expedient for you not to marry but all things are lawful but to me marriage is not expedient right now under the present circumstances there at Corinth And then he goes ahead with a but if. He says, but if. uh, Immediately we know there is a choice to be made. And so again, he's not dealing with commandment. He's dealing with concession. Uh, If he gives them a choice, don't they have a choice? Well, certainly they do. And that's what he's saying here. He says, but if they cannot control themselves, uh, that is, in an unmarried state, if they, if they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. To burn in passion, desire. Now, he thinks what's better than marriage? Uh, being single, that's what he said. But if they cannot contain themselves, what is marriage better than? It's better than burning with passion. Uh, that constant inward struggle within a person. And so if a person can live without that constant inward struggle, Paul says it's good. It's absolutely non-objectable. Nobody could ever object. It's blameless. It's excellent. It's morally right for them to never marry. But if they could not handle the pressure He urges marriage. It's good either way. So neither one of which is bound uh, on the saints. Neither the single state nor the marriage state is bound on the saints. He says as far as he, by uh, inspired advice, and I think again, as you read on in regard to the present, he says, My singleness is preferable, preferable to marriage, but marriage is preferable to burning. <coughs> and most people, as uh, he's already stated, uh, the common thing is going to be for them to marry, isn't it? Now he's going to deal with the married. Uh, He's dealt with the single person. He dealt with the fact that you could get married, uh, what you should do if you are. Uh, He's dealt with the unmarried and the widows. He will deal with virgins later. And now he's going to talk about a Christian married to a Christian. Read with me verse 10 and 11. And unto the married I command, Yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. Now, the reason that I know it's a Christian married to a Christian It's verse 12. You would never get it from verse 10 and 11, but verse 12. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He says, I don't really need to say anything on this. The Lord's already spoken. But let me remind you what he said. So Paul goes ahead. He says, I don't tell you this. The Lord tells you this. And then he's going to say in verse 12, I'm going to tell you not the Lord. So the Lord has already spoken in verse 10 and 11. He's not spoken in regard to verse 12. To the married I give this command, uh, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate or depart from her husband. Verse 11. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And so Paul makes the statement uh, to this uh, lady, she must not separate. That's the word C-H-O-R-I-Z-O in the Greek. I can't even pronounce it. But that's how the transliteration is of its spelling. And this is, even now, the legal word for divorce. There's an argument in the Brotherhood that that separation is here, and do not divorce. That's an old argument that's been going on for a long time, and it needs to be settled. And Paul will settle it here with this one word. In my judgment, the Bible knows nothing about legal separation. You'll not find that anywhere in the Scriptures. There is no legal separation. It's only known, uh, it only knows the divorce. I think separation is more ungodly than divorce because you're not admitting the truth, and that's also complicated your sin then. Now, what he says in the latter part of verse 11, he says the husband must not divorce his wife. And that's the word, A-P-H-I-E-M-I, however you pronounce that. And that's a one only, uh, that, that one word only means divorce. And whether he's forbidden uh, uh, of the woman, in the first part of verse 10, uh, he's forbidden of the husband in the latter part of verse 11. Uh, in regard to divorce. So what's Paul's discussion of carizzo? uh, Divorce. Carizzo and Appian, those two Greek words that we introduced here a minute ago, are the same according to Paul because he parallels them in his writing here. The woman must not divorce her husband or separate from him and the husband must not divorce his wife. He makes those parallel the actions. He's not saying the husband ought not to do something. He hasn't told the woman not to do. Why does he use those two words? Well, you can ask him when you see him sometime in your future. Now the word carozo does say something. The word ephemia does not. There is a small difference between these two words. It gives the idea of distance, of breaking something, where divorce, at is more a legal document signing type thing. But they both end up the husband and wife not being husband and wife anymore, don't they? They are still divorced. One stresses one feature of divorce, the other stresses another feature of divorce. Caruso, (laughs) stresses the idea that I'm no longer with you. Affemia is a document that proves we are no longer husband and wife. Uh, it's more of a legal term, you see, where the other is more a practical term, but they're parallel. It's interesting to find out in Art Gingrich's word study that Garizzo had a had since become a legal term, like uh, split has nearly become a legal term today in our courts, a split up. Now, how do we know this is a Christian married to a Christian? Well, verse 12 says, To the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer... So the married up there in verse 10 is not all the married. It's not all the married, is it? So verse 12 talks about the other side of the marriage picture, a believer and an unbeliever. And in the church, you've got uh, believers, married to unbelievers. And who else would uh, believers be married to as an unbeliever? I know that uh, it's simplistic, maybe it gets us to see what said in verse 12, and that is believers uh, being married to unbelievers. And so we've got the marriage, uh, married, broken down in two groups, uh, the married and the rest. That's the way he breaks them down, to the married, he says. I say this, and to the rest, I say this, in verse 12. So verse 10, he's talking to the married. In verse 12, he's talking to the rest. Now, if the married are all the married, the rest are who? The unmarried. But are the rest the unmarried? No, the rest are Christians married to non-Christians. If that's the rest, who is this group up here? That's different from the rest, since they are married. Uh, since they are married, well, are Christians married to Christians. In verse ten uh, and eleven. Now, <clears throat> if you do what he said not to do, if you do divorce, then remain unmarried, he says, or else be reconciled. Reconciliation is urged. Now I think the reason for that is uh, these people want free from the wife or and, and we're so glad that they now could live this holy, celibate life and Paul says that's not God's intent. And by the way, that's the opposite of what he told the Jews in Deuteronomy 24. If you go back and read that, uh, he said, if I give a lady a bill of divorcement and put her away, I could never have her back. But in this case, you could be reconciled. So he's trying to hinder divorce is why he said that. And this one here is trying to regulate the divorce. That's why it's the opposite that you find in Deuteronomy 24. Had Moses been addressing a situation that already existed, then he probably would have said what Paul said here. But to hinder divorce, God made a law back there. Uh, Since uh, their children, they're childish, and don't understand everything that we understand about marriage and divorce. We're all educated and understand all perfectly but they did not. And so he says, that's reconciliation, is the desire of God when a Christian divorces a non-Christian. Now, hang on, because God never has demanded all of his desire, uh, desires. We're going to find out later that God's going to say, have you been loosed from a wife? Then don't seek a wife. But if you're married, if you uh, marry, you have not sinned, and so he's going to add something to this later on. So don't think you've studied it all yet. Uh, just don't draw uh, doctrines in your mind just yet. Just try to learn what he said. Let the experts write the books and draw the doctrines. <coughs> And so what God is saying is God wants His people to live in a kind of uh, peace. He's ordained for them, and that's the reason for the marriage situation. Uh, So reconciliation, the very word would say that, wouldn't it? Peace. So what's the Lord desire for the lady that's divorced her husband? Peace. Now hang on to that when we get into verse 12. Now what uh, what Paul said to the Corinthian uh, to the Christian married to the non-Christian so far is exactly what Jesus said to the Christian married to the Christian in verse ten. Jesus has regulated the marriage of one Christian to another with the statement "Don't divorce." Paul has regulated the marriage of the Christian to the non-Christian with the statement do not divorce. And uh, if uh, the third person imperative to the husband in verse 12, he must not divorce her. And to the woman or the wife in verse 13, she must not divorce him. A negative is added, uh, negative uh, participle. But the verb is in the third person imperative, spoken to the believer, uh, believing man, don't divorce her. Spoken to the believing woman, uh, the believing woman, do not divorce him. Uh, you probably don't know why I'm making such a big point of all this, but you will in just a minute. All right, he talks about the reason for con- uh continuing that marriage not just the commandment don't do it but in verse 14 he says don't divorce the unbeliever for and there's the reason why the word for means the reason why the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." I don't know that I'm absolutely correct, but I can hear the Corinthians uh, guys and gals then saying something like this, now wait a minute. I'm now a holy person in covenant with Christ. How can I continue this unholy state of being joined to a pagan who bows down to Greek gods? How can I do that? Now I can hear them saying that, can't you? Out of their background. Out of what they have been taught. What they've been influenced by. Uh, You can't do that because you're Marriage is a sanctified marriage, Paul says, and your children are ceremonially clean. When he talks about the sanctifying of the partner, he's talking about uh, uh, marriedly, being married. I don't know how to pronounce that word is what? The marriage is sanctified. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about this unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife being uh, sanctified unto God. They're sanctified in regard to the marriage. When he talks, in other words, God sanctions that marriage. He talks about the, the children. Uh, he's talking about ceremonially. They are not illegitimate. There's all kinds of doctrines that came out of the psychology and the philosophy of those Greeks. And you can see how that would resurrect in the church. Why, if you're married to an unbeliever, your children are illegitimate. You can see why Paul had to write what he did to these folks. Uh, So they're not even unholy, as was the children who came back from captivity Uh, speaking half in the language of Ashdod and half in the language of the Hebrews. You'll read about that in the Old Testament. And so they were considered there ceremonially unclean because they were the result of a marriage between a Jew and a non-Jew. The Corinthians had the concept of the Greeks that since the body is unholy, it didn't matter what you did with it. Now the Stoics' influence uh, said, since the body is unholy, don't let it do anything that feels good. Punish the body. And that was the difference between the Epicureans and the Stoics. Of course, you can look all that up on Google. You can find all that information you want on Google about the uh, Epicureans and the Stoics' philosophy in regard to this. Well, it would be the Stoics who would say, you couldn't be joined to an unbeliever. They would be the ones from their doctrine that would be teaching that. And so that part of the agreement is being presented by Paul here. The reason for continuing is you have a holy union, Paul tells them, and you have holy children. So don't let that upset you, because they're holy, they're they're set apart. Uh, That's the reason for the continuing together, uh, believer with the non-believer in marriage. The reason for continuing in this holiness of the marriage and the ceremonial clean, and therefore the holiness of the children. So for the benefit of your union and your children, continue continue in this marriage it uh, is it is holy they are clean they're holy dedicated Uh, a Christian married to a non-Christian has a sanctified uh, a marriage as he does when he's married to a Christian so Paul's point is that the marriage is sanctified. That's his idea. So you're married to a non-believer. Your marriage is still sanctified. Marriage a Sanctified means set apart. And in God's eyes, you're set apart. That marriage is set apart. It's holy. Uh, the marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian is legitimate. It's sanctified, and therefore, holy union. Now one of the partners is not sanctified to God, that's true, the uh, non-believer, he's sanctified to his wife, he's set apart to his wife, that's the idea of the word sanctify. He's not sanctified to God, the unbeliever. Or the unbelieving wife is set apart, sanctified to her husband, as surely as the Christian is. And maybe not as knowledgeably, but as surely in God's eyes. An unbelieving marriage, an unbeliever married to a believer is as set apart, sanctified for that union as the believer is. How about two unbelievers? That would nearly be the same, wouldn't it? Since the part, uh, parents, sanctify each other within the marriage (laughs) and so that would also apply to two unbelievers married to one another. Uh, He's not talking about the saved. He's talking about being separated from each other. Uh, They're separated from all other people. Uh, God made the two who left their father and mother become one. In fact, That's what the Bible teaches. He made the two, one. He didn't say two believers. He just said two in Genesis 2 and verse 24. But now we get to the body part of it. He's going to talk about the reason for the union to be dissolved. The believer has nothing to do with dissolving this union. Mark that down right now. Because what was commanded in verse 10, do not dissolve it. Okay. But Paul said in verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. Uh, That's third person imperative. Hang on to that a minute uh, and we'll come back to it. A believing man or woman is not bound Paul says in such circumstances God has called us to live in peace and so the reason for the marriage is uh, marriage not continuing is the unbeliever leaves that's the word C-H-O-R-I-Z-E-T-I-A which is just third-person imperative Of C-H-O-R-I-Z-E-T-H-O. Now, what did C-H-O-R-I-Z-E-T-H-O mean back up there in verse 10? It meant divorce. Separate. If the unbeliever is separated, and by the way, that's the word Jesus used when he said, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That word, kerusio, Uh, is that word that he chose and so whatever Jesus told them to do the Holy Spirit is telling this unbeliever to do now Paul's already said that Jesus talked uh, to what union Uh, what union did Paul say Jesus spoke of I say this but uh, not I but the Lord Christian married to a Christian. Now he's talking about uh, talking to the, the listener. He's not saying to the believer, uh, you let him go. He says to the unbeliever, do it. Go ahead and leave to the unbeliever. When he said to the believer, not divorce. So who was not to divorce? The believer. The word leave, karusho, in verse 15 is also used in verse 10. And the believer is forbidden to do that. Here's in verse ten, what's the believer? Uh, what the believer is forbidden to do, the unbeliever here is bidden to do. And we have seen that in verse ten, the unbelieving or the believing uh, mate uh, cannot divorce and leave leave their partner. But if they're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever decides to leave, let him go. It's the third person, single number, uh, present tense, imperative, mood in the active voice. I'll sure be glad to get through this chapter because of all this highfalutin word study. Uh, of course, when you get through with all of it, you can see a little clearer than you could before of what's being said. Uh, so I guess it has its uh, benefits and of course uh, that word means with the least powerful imperative possible. That is the best, the the, the uh, least power an imperative mood can have. The unbeliever is addressed and at least permitted to divorce the Christian, and that's the only case. Now there are 17 uses of the third person imperative here in chapter 7. Each one of them is addressed to certain people. In verse 2, the husband and the wife are said that they are not to forbid each other the marital right. In verse 9, the unmarried and the widow is told it's good for them that they should marry if they cannot contain. The Christian wife is told not to separate. The unbeliever here is told that he can separate if he's he been on leaving uh, all uh, all the called are said to abide in a situation in which they are called. He says those that are called uh, uncircumcised, he says, do not have to be circumcised. And those that are called uh, circumcised, you should not become uncircumcised. The, call, uh, the called slaves are told not to let it matter. Third person imperative there, that uh, that he was a slave. The married and the uh, loose, in verse 27, are told not to speak, uh, seek a wife. Uh, that's first person imperative. The father of the engaged party is told in one occasion that he can do what he wants, and in the other occasion, let them marry. Each case that I know of uh, uh, throughout the whole line, the third person imperative accepts for the occasion is permissible. So Paul's primary use of it is permissive. I don't think I have to Uh, teach that God is commanding the unbeliever to divorce, but God is permitting the unbeliever to divorce. Uh, If he's uh, talking to the believer, it would be a second person. In other words, you let him do it. You, one person talking to a third person, there's no second person involved here. He is addressing somebody uh, when he says, do it, because let him is just our way of saying it's imperative. Uh, Go through this chapter and take out the let outs, the let outs, the word let out, and just make it all do it, Uh, it is my will that they have my permission to. And so if you put it that way, if the unbeliever depart, uh, he has my permission to do so. Uh, That would uh, get it because that's the third person imperative. And we don't uh, even have that in English language. All our imperatives are second person imperatives. Every one of them. The Greek... uh, predominance uh, predominates the third person imperative so what he's saying is if a christian lady is married to a christian man she does not have my permission to separate and the husband does not have my permission to divorce if you'll just translate it that way each time then this one will come to make sense to you if the unbelieving is separated he has my permission to do so why well that's the next verse nearly every time that I've asked that question if I just read the next verse God knew I'd have that question evidently and so the next verse I mean why does God permit the unbelieving guy to leave the believing lady why God has called us to live in peace. And how do you know he'd be able to say that? See, number one, the positive reason, the action is go on and get out of here. The third person imperative, you have my permission to leave. The result is the believer stands in an unbound or a loose state in verse 15. It says a believer, a believing man... Or woman is not bound in such circumstances. So what's the first reason God wants the unbeliever to depart? So that the believer will not be bound to the rascal who doesn't want to stay. If he wants the divorce, God wants him to have the divorce so that the believer is not bound, verse 15, in such circumstances. Not bound, uh, that phrase, is in the perfect tense, so that the believer stands not bound in such circumstances. In all other circumstances, however, uh, how would the believer stand? He would stand bound. So, in what set of circumstances? In the circumstances where the unbeliever is not willing to remain, the action involves the reason and the admonition. The action is divorce. If the unbeliever is uh, charisian that Greek word, let him chorizio, third person imperative. In other words, it is my permission that he do so. It is in my permissive will that he does so. If the unbelieving is willing to depart, uh, Wanting to depart, God says he has my permission to do it. It is my will that he leave. Now God's will here is not a commandment because he's already doing it. He's already decided he's uh, uh, splitting this thing. And so what is God's will if that guy is married? Let them be split? Why? Why? Well no, uh, number one I don't want you bound. He says the believer is not bound in such circumstances. So number one, God don't want you bound. Now without those circumstances of the unbelieving de- unbelievers departing the believer would still be uh, what to the unbeliever? Still be bound. Because Paul said or God said through Paul don't Divorce. What is the rule to the believer? Don't divorce. What is the permission to the unbeliever? Do it. Why? Because I don't want the brother bound. That's number one. Number two, I have called you to peace. I want you to have peace. And so God said the result of it is you stand in an unbound state. The reason is God wants his child in a situation of peace, negatively. How do you know uh, you'll be able to save him anyway? Uh, Can't you hear some people saying, uh, you ought to tolerate that little old boy and stay married to him. You may be able to win him to Christ. Paul says in verse 16, don't think that way. Don't think that way at all. He said, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Uh, you follow them in their immorality; is what happens. You follow them into their immorality most of the time, because evil communication, evil companionship, corrupts good morals. That's First Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. And so Paul is simply saying there are three reasons for uh, dissolving this thing. Number one, God doesn't want you joined to this guy anymore. Number two, God wants you to live in a uh, uh, condition of peace. And number three, you probably won't be able to win him anyway had you uh, stayed with him. Now that's three reasons for God's permissive imperatives. And so the divorce is in the mind of the unbeliever, not the believer in regard to verse 12. Now, I'm sure it's God's permissive imperative, because God hates divorce. Why the permission? He gives three reasons. Now, we in the church, the family of God, don't all agree on this. But if I'm, uh, if I have not uh, exegeted the text, I need to be convicted of it. Uh, I've presented it the best I know. That text is in its original language and its original setting. I've been wrong before and I'm wrong. I could be wrong right now. I just don't know uh, what I'm wrong about, or I'd correct it. And as soon as I find out that I'm wrong uh, about about it, I'll change. And uh, so I think I'm right on this. I think it's uh, grammatically true according to the Greek words. Paul used here that God inspired him to uh, write. I think it's textually true. I think it's biblically sound and uh, uh. now the fact that it works in life doesn't make it right. But the fact that its right makes it work in life and so nothing that doesn't work in life is right everything that works in life is now everything that works out in life is good and wholesome and right but everything good and wholesome and right works out in life and god wants people basically to be saved eternally that's his want and he And I I don't think God's trying to make it hard to get to heaven. Uh, Now, it is hard for some folks to get to heaven because they won't submit their will to God. But I think God has done everything he can do to make it relatively easy for us to to preach it. And isn't that uh, just like a father, uh, particularly one that, has a robe hung right by the window and a ring underneath and shoes on the floor and a calf with a knife to his throat. I mean, that's the kind of father, uh, a father is really interested in people being saved, is the one like you read about in the Prodigal son. we have been blessed because our time is up. (laughs) I apologize, but this is a, um, because of the problems among men uh, in regard to marriage and divorce and all of that, uh, there is some difficulty in teaching 1 Corinthians 7. But just remember, Paul began by telling these people now uh, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me verse 1 so he's answering some of their questions that we don't have the questions we just got Paul's answer to those questions but they had a terrible uh, local pool of immorality and idolatry and and, uh, their Corinth because of its geographical location. It stood between the trade ships of east and west and because of that, and all of them passing right through Corinth there in that isthmus between the seas. All of the pagan ideas of the world converged right there. And we've already saw from a, stu- a historical study that they had over 4,500 priestesses that went out daily on their roster and submit, solicited men for uh, sex performances on an altar to Goddess of Sex, the goddess Diana. And so you can imagine the church being established in a, in a situation like this. You can imagine why, you can understand why the Corinthians had 17 major problems that Paul's dealing with in the 1st Corinthian letter. You can understand. But yet, with all of their problems, uh, with a man living with his father's wife and them taking one another to court before an ungodly world, and all of the problems that Paul dealt with, He addressed them in the first chapter as the church of God at Corinth. The ones who were sanctified, justified, purified, and ones that was under the leadership of God and the fact that God would see them through, verse 9, to the day of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 9, 8 and 9. So... We'll take up next week right there with the call of God beginning in verse 17 through 24. Thank you. I apologize for all that... Legal jargon, and I'm sure that everybody got every bit of it. But you go to the Greek texts, and you can find...